Why don't you guys open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and we have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Acts chapter 1. Um, how many of you guys know what day today is, just out of curiosity? Pentecost, right, Pentecost. Does anybody know what Pentecost is? Just curious. Anybody know what that is? Anyone want to take a guess what Pentecost is? 50 days, hence the Penta. Something, Pentecost, right? All right, 50. Does anybody else have any other definitions or descriptions what Pentecost is? Holy Spirit, all right? 50 days after Passover, okay, good, good, good one. Birth of the church, all right? Any other good suggestions, ideas? It's all good. All right, I think we kind of exhausted most of them. So what I want to do right now is uh, because today is Pentecost, and it's one of those celebrations that as a church we have really tried to lay hold of and uh, celebrate and remember um, and I'll get a little bit more into details as to what it is which it does actually incorporate almost every single thing that you guys have just said but the importance of this day is really I would say on the same level as Christmas or Easter it's that level it's really important to just pause and reflect and consider what it is. Um, I also recognize that it's also one of those holidays that, for the most part, in the Western church, at least in the American Western church, it's oftentimes just omitted. Nobody even really knows about it or thinks about it, which I think is unfortunate because it's pretty, pretty, pretty significant. So with that being said, I want to kind of read the story that's attached to this. I'm going to read a lot of passages, so if you guys are cool with just listening, um, hopefully that will be helpful. Again, you're not just really listening to me. You're listening to what the Holy Spirit has to say through this passage. So I'm going to read from Acts chapter 1, around verse 4 through to 11, and then we're going to jump on into Acts chapter 2, read a handful of passages beginning at verse 1 all the way down to around verse 21. So we'll choose kind of a selection of that. So I will have the passages up on the screen. Uh, with that being said, I want to just jump right in. We'll take a look at Acts chapter 1, pick it up with the life of Jesus. In fact, it was just about 10 days ago, somewhere around there, uh, the, the church we would have, we would have celebrated. In fact, in, instead we were actually at the beach celebrating baptism, but it's typically what's known as Ascension Sunday. It's the day in which we recognize Jesus rose again, uh, not only rose again from the dead, but then ascended into heaven. So he is in this place of power and authority, and he's ruling over all things. And this is why, again, it's another significant movement in the church. But now today we focus on the subject of Pentecost. So beginning at verse one or verse four, chapter one says this, and while they were staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. This is Jesus speaking. He says, but wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6 goes on to say, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And then he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and throughout the entire ends of the earth. Skip on down to chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, it says, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, so this is about 10, 12 or so days after this particular first movement that we just read, it goes on to say, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on them, each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Down in verse 5, it goes on to say, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were amazed, and they were bewildered, because each of them were hearing them speak in their own language. Jump on down to verse 8, speaking or telling forth the mighty works of God. Peter is asked what's going on here, as you would probably be inquisitive on that particular moment, because you see crazy and strange and odd things happening. And so they ask Peter, what in the world's going on? Peter then begins to respond. And I want to finish up this little segment here by reading verses uh, 16 to 18. Then Peter begins to speak. God spoke through the prophet Joel. In the last days, it shall be that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And this is the lengthy word of God. And I want to pray, and then we'll jump in to look at this. So Jesus, we thank you, God, for what you've spoken to us. And we ask you now that you just bring sense to it, help us to not just learn and know some data, but God, we pray that you would help us to fully engage in the work that you're doing. God, that we would not just simply be bystanders, that we would not just simply be people sitting on the sidelines, observing, watching, maybe even cheering, but that we would be participants. What you accomplished here today that we commemorate 2,000 years ago is you enlisted all people regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of where they live, regardless of uh, age, young, old, regardless of male or female, God, you have called and equipped and empowered all people to be part of what you're doing. We want in. We want in. God, I pray that you would awaken in our souls a discontentment for non-participation, a discontentment for simply sitting on the sidelines and a deep hunger to embrace and to be part of all that you're up to in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to look at real quickly just kind of asking the big obvious question. Like, first of all, what, what is so significant about this day and why do we even consider or think about it? We'll get more to that in just a moment. But I want to, first of all, just kind of start with the big, like, E and the I chart. Like, what is this day all about? And it's one of those important days. In fact, ancient Jews, they had three main celebrations that every male uh, participant of the Jewish community, they were required to actually make a trek, a yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Imagine that living 90 miles away in some port, part of uh, the, the country of Israel, uh, that you would have to travel that really lengthy amount, three times a year. You didn't have a car, they didn't have a bus system, they didn't have airplane, airplanes. You would take your donkey or whatever type of other beast of burden that would get you from point A to point B. But this was a requirement that Jews, faithful Jews, were basically invited to be a part of. Uh, the other two feasts was what was called the Feast of Passover, and then the other one was Tabernacles. In fact, the idea of Shavuot, which is what we're celebrating here, the idea of Feast of Weeks, can also be known as the Feast of Pentecost, as we, that's kind of more the, the Greek terminology of that. But the word weeks literally means a, a set amount of weeks post-Passover. So the way that this particular day that we celebrate today would get its number was 
you find wherever Passover lands, and then you count out 50 days from there, and then that's where you get. So it always shifts, obviously, throughout the year based upon whenever Passover actually takes place. Um, and what we see with regard to that, the, the name Shavuot or weeks comes from Exodus chapter 34, verse 22, Deuteronomy 16, and then Leviticus. They would determine. So there's at least three basic uh, ways in which Jews would celebrate, why they would celebrate this particular day as being significant. Number one, the most obvious is what's called first fruits. So the idea from that, again, like I said, dating it from Passover out 50 days from that day when they would begin the first fruit. So again, it was an agricultural type of a society. As soon as their, you know, wheat or whatever it was that they grew began to, to, to sprout or whatever, whatever wheat does, I don't really know. I'm not that smart at that type of stuff. But whatever they would do, they would begin to like bring it in. It was kind of their first fruits. It was literally their first fruits. And it would be a time to celebrate, like a big party. Imagine, imagine uh, planting your crops and then growing your crops and then going out and gathering your crops. It's kind of like that moment of like, yes, we get to actually eat this stuff that we've been working hard and laboriously over, and now it's here. Now we get to celebrate. Now we get to participate and partake, and everybody gets to have some. That was the big idea. So when you think of the idea of a first fruit, they would just have a big party. And during this particular time of year, they would also read an important passage or an important uh, book in the Bible. It's called, you know, the book of Ruth, if you're familiar with that. It's the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, and so Ruth, if you're familiar with her story, she was an outcast, an outsider. She was a, a, a Moabitess. Again, if you're familiar with uh, Jewish history, Moabites were basically a people group that Jews did not really look too favorably upon. However, she was brought into the family of Jewish people. And the story of Ruth is, is beautiful. It's only four chapters. But they would read this during this particular time of year. And it was a way of commemorating, reminding themselves that God's vision, God's purposes oftentimes go way beyond what they're oftentimes expecting that for the most part judaism was not really a missionary style type of a uh, a religion um you you think of a guy like jonah he wasn't he was he was kind of the closest thing you would have to a missionary and he hated his job he actually hated the people that he was called to go preach to in fact when they repent and turn to god he's really really angry about the whole thing the whole project is just like in his mind a waste of energy and time but God has always had a heart for the nations. God has always maintained a posture where he welcomes all people, no matter who they are. God, God, is, not God is not racist. God is not focused on Jews alone to the exclusion of all other human beings. God loves all human beings. And the book of Ruth would have been read in this time as a reminder that God's heart is for all nations. And so they would read this during this time, celebrating the Feast of first fruits. The second thing that um, this season kind of commemorates, um, again, we get this from like the book of Leviticus, where from the time of Passover, when they came out of Egypt, literally 50 days later, there was a really significant event that actually took place and happened. And it was when Moses goes to Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments. So literally, the second thing that this season kind of commemorates is the giving of the Torah. That when the Torah was given, like the revelation of God was actually given to the people. And it was this moment that they received like enlightenment and understanding and wisdom from God that they were then to call to live according to. And the last kind of movement of this, this is a traditional historical uh, way of understanding. This was like the same time that would have been celebrated for David's death. So those three types of things. Number one, first fruits. Number two, the giving of the Torah. Number three, uh, commemoration of 
David's death, the greatest king of all time, right? That was kind of the way they would have viewed this. So what I want to do this morning is just kind of look at three main movements or three main things that kind of Pentecost tells us, teaches us about this thing. Because Jesus sits down with his disciples and says, I want you to go into the city of Jerusalem and wait for this particular day. When this particular day comes, something powerful is going to happen. Something's going to initiate some brand new movement in the timeline that God's up to in this world. And so those three things I want for us to think about. Number one is we'll take a look at this fact that Pentecost is really about God's presence being our comfort. God's presence being our comfort. Throughout the reading that we just looked at, we recognize that one of the moments that, or one of the movements that takes place is this thing of the tongues of fire come upon the heads of the people. Again, we can read this or read past it and just kind of like not really think too much about it. But fire, the tongues of fire was symbolic of something. Now, again, you can go back to the Mount Sinai and when the Torah was delivered, uh, there was fire that was actually setting ablaze the mountaintop. But also, too, we know throughout the scripture that the fire that we oftentimes see arise throughout the Old Testament was symbolic of the actual temple itself. So throughout the people of Israel's history, God basically said, you're my people, to the Jewish people, and within you I'm going to live. So God literally takes up camp. God lives in the midst of his people. The question is, where did God live? Again, most of you guys probably already know this. God lived, God claimed to have lived within the temple or the tabernacle of that time. And over that temple and tabernacle, whether it had been the old tabernacle system or the new temple, which would have been a brick-mortar building, um, God's presence resided. And to recognize that, there were sacrifices that were constantly going, going up, which meant that there was smoke, which meant that there was always fire going up. And all of this was a way in which God was sending forth this visual. I'm here with you. So anytime you begin to question, if you're Jewish and you're like, where's God? That's right, God's, God's here. He's in the midst of us. We built our camp, our existence around God. God's here. He guides us. His presence is our treasure. His presence reminds us that we're not alone in this world. We're not destined to just try to figure things out on planet Earth by ourselves. That God himself has taken up residence in the midst of us. But what happens in this moment of Pentecost that these tongues of fire are no longer over the temple. They're over each and every human being that's present. The, the symbolism cannot be more profound. Like what God is declaring with, with loud, unambiguous terms and statement is that my presence is now with my people. I want you to just pause and think about this. Because we oftentimes go through life and we think so insignificantly of the church, of God's people. And again, for many of us, again, we have had moments in the church or in the midst of God's people that we have been wounded by God's people. But the fact is that God has chosen, for whatever reason, to live in the midst of his people. So one of the reasons why we encourage you, like, don't, don't miss gathering with God's people, wherever that's at, whatever that looks like, whether that's in a home, what we have what we call community groups, or within groups of men that gather, or groups of women that gather, or gathering on Sunday morning, because there's something unique that happens when God's people come together. 
Again, yes, you're always subject to being wounded and hurt and having issues and problems and challenges that need to be worked through and processed. We will all be faced with offenses from time to time. We will all be offended by other people. We will also all contribute to offense to other people. But that's part of the process because God has given us his presence. And within his people, God begins to show forth his goodness within that. Under the ancient administration, or if you think of the Old Testament, the old covenant that God had, the way that God's presence was revealed was through the temple. In the new covenant, God's presence is amidst his people. I think the big takeaway is that you, my friends, are not alone. You're not living a life of insignificance, of purposelessness, that God is with us. God is with his people. God is in the midst. And it's not just us as a church here in San Luis Obispo that we alone are like the source of God's presence. No, no, this is a universal thing, meaning it spans the entire globe in which we live in, that God's presence. This is the beautiful thing about the church. You can go anywhere on planet Earth, wherever Jesus' name is proclaimed, and you will find your people. They're your people. I don't care what color skin they have. I don't care what type of denomination they're from. I don't care what language they speak. Wherever Jesus is preached, those are your people. Because their God is your God. God's presence is with those people. It's one of the reasons why I think it's so important as a church that we acknowledge the universality, the fact that God loves all people that have called upon his name. and God loves all people, period. I just want to be really clear on this. But there's something unique and beautiful that happens when there are a people that rise up and say, we welcome God's presence. We welcome God in this place. We orient and align our lives around this God who's given himself to us. So number one, we see God's presence ultimately is our comfort. The second thing that we see is that God's mission is our mission. God's mission is our mission. And he goes on to say to his people, Jesus says he speaks, and go into Jerusalem, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So he gives them a mission to bear testimony, to bear witness to something. I said this before, that God is a missionary God. God has a name. From the very beginning, when God moved upon planet Earth and called all people to follow him from even Adam himself. God empowers Adam to go forth into the world to exercise dominion over all things. And by the time we get to the life of Abraham, God is sending Abraham to go out into an unknown people that he was supposed to live in a particular way that was to bear testimony to what God is like. Now, we, we know that most of the story throughout the Old Testament that God's people, whoever they are, didn't always do a really good job. They don't always represent God well. And you can even say the same thing about you and I as human beings. We don't always represent God rightly or faithfully or well. But nonetheless, that's you can stand back and be in shock and awe over the fact that God actually chooses human agents to be those that bear testimony. But this is what God uses. Why? I don't know. But this is what God chooses to use is people like you and I he equips us so that we would be part of what he's up to in this world. And he goes on to say, you will be my witnesses. Now, one thing I think about this is that this is a noun, not a verb. It can't be used as a verb, like bear witness. But it's, first of all, it's a noun, which means it designates a particular type of people. 
Now, again, I know for some of you, you have had people that you've encountered and they're out there trying to witness to you. And they're trying to be pushy upon you with their ideas and ideologies and whatnot, whether it be Christian or whether some form of cult, whatever the case is. We've all encountered that. But it's kind of caused, I think, in some cases within the modern church, like a little bit of a nervousness. Like, I don't want to be that pushy person. I don't want to be that annoying person. Um, But the fact of the matter is, this is why I would suggest, this is a noun first and foremost. We are called to bear testimony to something. What does that even look like? What, What does that even mean? Well, first of all, take the word in its original context. Who were these people that Jesus is saying this to? These are a bunch of broken, messed up people that thought they had it all figured out. They thought they had it all together until Jesus dies and Peter realizes he's not as together as he thought he was. He denies Jesus three times. His life is literally undone. Imagine the life that Peter faced. And yet Jesus restored him. Uh, you had people that were part of that initial group that had deep, deep, deeply held political opinions. One of the guy by the name of Simon the Zealot, which meant that he basically viewed anything, any form of participation with Rome as being evil and a total denial of the God of Israel. And then you had a guy like um, Simon, uh, the tax collector, Matthew, the tax collector. And here he is basically working side by side with each other. He was one that had literally sold out to the Roman government. And yet within this community of people, you've got these radically diverse opinions. And over, I don't know, assumptions of how great and how strong and how sturdy they are. And yet at the end of the day, all of them are deeply flawed and deeply broken. Yet these are the people That Jesus says, I'm going to do something for you, upon you, invite you, over you, through you. And you will not be able to explain it away other than that God did something. That's what a witness is. That's what a testimony is. That's what somebody who just has to look at their life and say, I have no other way to explain my life other than what Jesus did. That's what a Christian is. That's what it means to bear testimony. I've said this to you guys before, but like for me, it happened when I was like almost 16 years old where I was a lost high school kid that just didn't know which end was up. I was constantly getting in trouble. I was just learning how to surf. I was hanging out with this bad surf crew down in Huntington Beach is where I grew up. And my parents divorced. My parents got remarried, uh, my dad to this lady. And then I was beginning to try to make sense of life in a new family, life, in a world that was just chaotic. And it was in the midst of that that God just did something in my heart. I came to life. There's no other way for me to describe it. I wasn't out searching for God. I wasn't praying a sinner's prayer. I wasn't asking for God to reveal himself to me. I I just knew there was a deep unsettledness, brokenness, lostness in my soul. It was my stepmom that just sat there, actually in a church parking lot, told me about God's love and God's forgiveness. And it was in that moment, something came to life. I have no other way to describe it other than God just doing something in my soul. That's just me bearing testimony. I didn't do it. I didn't search for it. I didn't make it happen. I didn't merit it. I didn't deserve it. God just did something. That's what a Christian is. God does something in your soul. And again, Don't look at that and think, well, man, I don't really have that great of a testimony. I grew up in the Christian church, or I knew about God since I was old. 
look, all of us have different stories by which God did something in our lives. And you might be looking at your life right now and be like, I don't even know if that ever happened to me. It's not too late ever to just say, God, make me come to life. Open my eyes to who you are. Cause my heart to swell with affection and love and care for who you are and for what you're doing in this world. And this is what we see. God takes these people. He says, you will be my witness. And he goes on to say that they then began to speak in other languages or other tongues. And there's all this debate is, were they speaking in other languages or other tongues? Or were other people able to understand their other interpretation or their other tongues? Now, again, you can spend a lot of time and energy. I'm not going to do that. But the point that I want to make is this. Whatever was happening there, whatever was happening there, the, the big thing that I don't want you to miss, because I, I don't think the New Testament wants you to miss it either, is the idea of languages being spoken, bringing confusion, should immediately take your head, your thinking back all the way to the book of Genesis, this moment called Babel. And all of you guys are familiar with that. Remember the story that the people of... The planet Earth, we're like, we are powerful, we are great, we can do anything we want, nobody will ever stop us. So they created this city, we would call it Babel, you can also think of it as Babylon. This uh, this depiction of human ingenuity, human technology, human greatness, human ability. It was literally this depiction of all that human beings can do. However, at the end of the day, God descends and begins to bring confusion over the diversity of their languages. And what happens is that throughout the history and throughout the course of the entire Bible, you see confusion. Like, that's a good way to think of even our planet right now, is a, is a, is a planet filled with confusion and chaos. So whatever's happening here on this day of Pentecost is God's reversing all that. He's taking all the chaos, all the confusion that was there, and he's bringing harmony and unity and beauty. It's, it's Babylon reversed is what God was bringing forth. And again, this is all part of God's mission. So in short, you can think of it this way. What is God up to in this world? What God is up to right now in this world, beginning, first of all, perhaps with your life, is he's wanting to deal with that ache in your soul. We can call it chaos, confusion, brokenness, lostness, that inner angst that's there that doesn't go away no matter how much you medicate no matter how many substances you take no matter how much other forms of distraction and diversion no matter how many netflix shows you binge watch no matter what you do it's still always there the next day what god's up to right now in this world beginning in this place beginning to go beyond this place is to take the chaos and bring order. And this is what we see. God has a mission. So God's mission is our mission. What I love about this is that you're not living a life of meaninglessness or worthless pursuits. Now, again, we could be. I mean, that's, for the most part, apart from God, or apart from an overarching narrative or theme. And I say that N, capital N, narrative, capital T, H, theme of God, God doing something in this earth. Apart from that, we are left to try to discern that on our own. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I think things like social media is so massively huge today. It's because we are literally a culture, a community of people that have no clue what life's all about. And yet 
we deeply want to know what life's all about. There's something part of our wiring that just says, I want to be part of something significant. And if I can't be part of something significant, I want to be in the world of somebody who is significant, and maybe I can just sit in their shadow and take it in or observe or post a like or repost something that they've got going on and just be in the midst of greatness. But the alternative narrative is to say, no, no, no. God is inviting you. God, the one who is truly great, the one who is truly good, the one who is truly beautiful, is inviting us into his mission to be a part of healing in this world, to be part of his purposes. So again, you thought you just came to church here this morning just to attend a gathering, just to attend a service or listen to somebody talk or hear somebody play music or just sit on the sidelines. Guys, please just hear me. This God has so much more for your life than just simply being an observer. His invitation is to be a part of the program of him bringing forth order out of people's chaos. You realize how profound that is. And I would even add, from just a deeply therapeutic psychological sense, how deeply satisfying that is. I think that's one of the reasons why we have seen a spike of social justice warriors in our world today. Because in the midst of a world where there's nothing but chaos, an undefined mess trying to figure out what is life all about. I know what life's about. Maybe I'll just take this cause and live my life for that entirely and be a deeply devoted person to that particular narrative. And at the end of the day, at some point when that runs its moment and it's no longer, we just swap social justice movements to jump onto something else. And at some point, that's going to fail. At some point, that's going to run out or burn out. Or at some point, something new is going to rise up. But the point of the gospel is that God says, I'm always been up to something. And I'm inviting people to be part of my purposes. So what Pentecost tells us is, number one, God's presence is our comfort. Number two, God's mission is our mission. And then lastly, God's power is our power. And what Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The word power that's actually there in the Greek is dunamis. It's, some, some of you guys I'm sure have heard of this, but it's, we get the English word dynamite from or dynamic from. It's the idea that we need power to do something. And this is what Pentecost reminds us of, is that God has not left us alone. His presence has come to live with us. God has not left us as a blank slate to try to figure life out on our own. His mission is our mission. And God has not left us powerless. But we have to somehow pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, accumulate as much gusto as we can, or some form of purpose or reason to just do something or intentionality. God says, no, I will give you every single thing that you need. He says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. And I love this because God's presence ultimately comes upon ordinary people in order to do extraordinary things. And again, you see that not only in the book of Acts, where God just takes normal people. Again, it's really easy for us to read the book of Acts and some of these other historical writings and be like, well, they were amazing people. They were just doing miracles. They were just like you and I. I think that's the big thing that we oftentimes trick ourselves and think, well, they were like super saints. They were like heroes of the faith. And they were like, you know, mighty men and women of God doing all this. What made them that, what caused them to become, is they just at some point in their life, as broken, messed up, confused people like you and I, they said, God, we want in. We want in on your agenda. 
We want to orient our lives around whatever it is that you're calling us to do. We want to be part of whatever solutions that you're calling us into. Again, what does that look like? Come back next week. We'll jump back into the book of First Peter. He begins to talk a little bit about kind of some of the, uh, the, 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 the moral codes. And we'll get into that, what that looks like. But right now, we just need to recognize that the invitation is to all people. It's one of the reasons why he goes on to say, just listen to this last little passage here again. I'll read it. He says um, in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 16, I'll read it again. He says, God spoke through the prophet Joel. In the last days, I shall come. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. If you have your Bible, you can underline the word all. This is so significant because what he's saying is not, not upon a select group of people, not upon just a certain qualitative type of person, but all people. And just in case we miss it, he goes on to say, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will part my spirit. The word servant there is a way of just simply looking at kind of social class and saying, even the lowest rank of human beings on planet Earth within your community as a servant class, even to them, God says, I will elevate and lift up and pour out my presence and my power in my mission, upon all people. Who does God exclude? That's just the thing. Nobody. Nobody. Christianity is oftentimes getting a bad rap, that it's so exclusionary. And there is exclusions, but please understand, first and foremost, at its very core, it's, it is the most radically accepting and embracing of all human being reality out there, that God says, I will pour out. There's nobody who will be excluded from the work that I want to bring about. So then what do you got to do? This is where Peter would later go on to say, just repent and turn to God. Be baptized. The big idea behind that is just say, I want all that God has, which means I'm going to turn away and let go of whatever false narrative or other storyline or other myth that I've been holding on to or clinging to or allowing to reshape or to make me, I'm going to let go of that and lay a hold of this reality that God is inviting us into. And as a result of that, we see that God then gives his power to people all across the spectrum, whoever they are. Whatever type of life they've ever lived, God says, I will give you what you need. But we see that those who are oftentimes gifted to do certain things naturally, by way of the Holy Spirit's power, you will be able to do even better. And those people who are not able to do certain things, God can actually empower you to do certain things that you would have never even dreamed of being able to do. With this source of power, knowing that it's available to all human beings, we could be different people. And this is the beauty of Pentecost in closing. Is Pentecost is not just something we sit back and admire or read about, kind of shake our heads, acknowledging, like, that's pretty awesome. It's, it's an invitation for us to step into all that God has for us. So I don't know where you're at or what types of circumstances you find yourself going through. This is about us saying yes to God across the board. God, yes to all that you have. God, yes to your presence in my life. God, yes to your mission and all that you're inviting me into. God, yes to the power that you promised me. So, in closing, I want us to all stand 
We're going to finish with a song of worship. We're going to partake of communion. Uh, the way that we're going to do this, as we oftentimes do, you're more than welcome to come down one of the aisles. I think we might even have some in the back. Maybe, maybe not. Um, and you're more than welcome to come receive the communion as you would like, and then go off back to your seats, and we will partake of the communion together. It's a way for us to be reminded of this mission that Jesus invites us into, that we're one family taking a meal together. And that's the symbolism that we are going to, in just a moment, partake together. But I wanted to also invite you that if you're here and you have any need whatsoever for prayer in your life, maybe you're just looking at your life and you sense a deep reality of powerlessness. Maybe the way that you become aware of that is just because of brokenness or chaos in your life. Or maybe you keep finding yourself in this cul-de-sac of dealing with the same sins over and over and over again. Or dysfunctionalities or same attitude or same temper. Whatever types of maladies or pathologies you find yourself cycling back into. This is maybe the moment that God says, I want to break that cycle. I want to break its power over you. And I want to give you a new life, a new future, and a new hope. 